Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kayan Isaacson. This week, it's 321 Go, Cosmo Macero. And I'm joined by Duana Beeman, Chief Diversity Officer for People's United Bank. And last up, Two Minutes with Tom. Hello and welcome to another edition of 321 Go on OA On Air, our closer look into the worlds of public affairs, culture, business, and the economy. I'm your host, Cosmo Macero. Joining me here on 321 Go is Cayenne Isaacson. Hello. Hey, Cayenne, coming in from the West Coast. We're coast to coast, you know. We are. Cayenne and Cosmo. I love it. It's very catchy. We got the whole nation covered. (laughs) You betcha. Good to be talking again. We got a couple interesting topics this week uh, because there's a lot of focus in the financial markets around inflation. Let's start there. The Dow Jones uh, has been uh, volatile. The S&P has fallen on a couple of days in this trading week, largely driven by concerns about inflation. The Consumer Price Index uh, has climbed 4.2% during this month. The the most it's climbed at that pace since 2008. Um, So there is concerns about inflation climbing and uh, really impacting the ability of the Fed to control it, to, to keep control of interest rates. Uh, and, 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 and we're seeing uh, prices across the board and things like, not all interrelated, but gasoline being one, uh, as well as other elements of consumer pricing. That's what's happening right now in terms of uh, uh, economic impact and inflation. Yeah, and certainly, you know, the timing, uh, not great for the Biden administration as they are trying to push through, you know, what is a $1.9 trillion pandemic relief bill, uh, which is a very large number, trillion with a T. Uh, You know, the Federal Reserve does say that they don't think it's going to be sustained inflation. But, you know, I I don't know how much we can always fully predict these things. I'm not an economist, so I'm not one to argue with the Fed, but... Um, they've been wrong before, but they've also been right. Uh, but for a new administration to come in and immediately be facing an economy like this is certainly, first of all, it's difficult too. It's on top of everything he's trying to do to battle COVID-19. Um, you know, are they all interrelated? I'm sure for the most part they are. But then as the world opens up again, I think some of the concerns that economists and others have is what's going to start to open and what are people eager for that's not going to be able to match. And then once we get into, I mean, I remember fifth grade, right? Like supply and demand, you continue to see those prices rise and inflation come into play. And it's certainly, you know, it's certainly concerning as we reeled, we had an economy reeling for the last year for one reason. And then now it seems like the pendulum is swinging. Um, Hopefully, good news ahead, but right now definitely seem to be in a tough spot. Yeah, no, that's definitely the case. Um, You know, theoretically, if interest rates were to increase, that's one thing that could slow down the housing market. I'm not sure if that's a terrible thing. It has been so overheated to the point of people being concerned about another housing bubble. Um, uh, One of the things the pandemic has done has, has 
uh, for one reason or the other, uh, motivated people to consider relocating either out of necessity or ability or, or the freedom of a remote work lifestyle. But, uh, you know, th that's that could be an outcome uh, if interest rates were to increase. Um, people are very focused on the housing market. And, and I think if they see, see it slow down, that, that could lead to some level of, of concern or, or even panic. But the, the housing market has absolutely been through the roof. There are factors impacting uh, the cost of, of gasoline, particularly the Colonial Pipeline uh, ransomware attack. So there's a lot of things that work here. Don't forget, though, I think you look back and you and, and the experience of the pandemic and of 2020 is, wow, all those layoffs, all that economic activity that was destroyed, the uh, entire industry is badly damaged. But somehow in the end, the markets finished the year incredibly strong. So there's some room for uh, for a sell-off. We just don't want to see a, pre a precipitous drop. Yeah, and, you know, like everything else, once it becomes political in nature, it takes on a different life of its own. Republicans are certainly using this to their advantage to push back against relief packages, to say that the Biden administration is on the wrong track. Um, and then on the other side, the Biden administration is saying, hey, this isn't this isn't on us. It's going to work itself out. We still have to push these things through. And, you know, once the once the politics come into play, it certainly it, it seems to somewhat like prolong these issues to a certain extent and really makes makes you kind of start to take a step back and say, I don't know, what is the right answer? Everyone has a different opinion, but um, I don't know. I, I, the housing costs certainly scare me. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I want to be able to buy a house again someday. But hey, we had the strangest year that, you know, perhaps country in the world has ever seen this past year. So to not expect disruption up and down and sideways, I think would be, you know, a little silly. But I'm not. All right, Kyan, let's shift gears a little bit uh, specifically to uh, Bitcoin and Elon Musk, founder of Tesla. He's making major news that has also impacted the markets, particularly around Bitcoin. Tell us about it. Uh, yes, in a tweet, again, how all news breaks these days, no formal statement, um, but in a, he tweeted Wednesday saying that Tesla will stop accepting Bitcoin as a payment, citing environmental concerns, which uh, when you think cryptocurrency, you certainly don't immediately think environmental concerns. Um, he said that we are concerned about rapid increasing use of fossil fuels for Bitcoin mining and transactions, especially coal. Uh, and that while Bitcoin is a good idea on many levels, its promise cannot come at a, quote, great cost to the environment. Uh, interesting, he won't be selling any of the Bitcoins that he owns or that Tesla owns. Um, you know, this is one of those things where uh, you take a step back and you really think about the power that a few key business leaders have. Um in tweeting this announcement, the price of Bitcoin fell 5%. Uh, and then Tesla's stock actually finished down on Wednesday as well, 4.4%. So, um, you know, had this come from a non-Elon Musk business leader, someone of a smaller stature, would we have seen this kind of effect? Probably not. But 
it is a lesson and a good reminder in how much these large business leaders and billionaires are really dictating the market to a certain extent with decisions that they make for their business, such as no longer taking Bitcoin. Um, and I, you know, cryptocurrency continues to baffle me and boggle my mind. Uh, but apparently, because it relies on computers and electricity, he is saying that there is an environmental impact that he wants to mitigate. Yeah, it's um, he certainly has the power to to to, um, to move uh, markets at any given day with a single tweet, which is pretty remarkable. But imagine having point, that power. It's it, it, yeah. Um, <laughs> I yeah. Do your tweets have that much power, Cosmo? Exactly. I like to just have power over my two my 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 two kids. Um, <laughs> you know, but you know, within this, it's what what uh, fascinates me is that you know, littered throughout this topic, this conversation, these stories, and and, and the discussion of Bitcoin, and you know. You see mining and fossil fuels and environmental impact and uh, energy and, and and China and and you're thinking I, this vision comes to mind of so wait Bitcoin is an environmental disaster Bitcoin mining is damaging there's so much fossil it's it 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 feels like we should be talking about some you know strip mining operation uh out in the tundra somewhere where, where the earth is being torn torn up and it, uh, coal is talk what they're talking about is is coal-fired power plants in china cranking out tons and tons of electricity only to essentially energize and support bitcoin mining which has nothing to do with mining as you might think of it it's all special purpose single purpose computers designed to uh, process these transactions it's it's just the power of language and the imagery but that's what we're talking about it's it and, and it's and indeed and it's not just elon musk uh the uh janet yellen is, is concerned about the impact on energy use uh in the in the bitcoin industry but uh, the the terminology cracks me up because you could easily think you're talking about something completely different when in fact you're just talking about massive power usage by computers uh, and, and and just so happens that most of those power plants in China are going to be fueled by by coal not an, not exactly an environmentally um, not the uh, you know, environmentally friendly uh, power source uh, you know fuel. So we will, uh, you know, we'll see. Bitcoin, I, I don't know what happens, you know, now or who knows. I mean, Elon Musk could say, like, I'm rolling out my own cryptocurrency next week. I wouldn't be surprised. So we shall see. Indeed. All right, finally, let's talk a little bit about banking and um, some sort of interesting new trends uh, in the area of bank marketing and what some of the marketing trends are going to be. We work with a number of different banks at Seven Letter ONA, and um, it's a it's a it's a uh, sort of fascinating industry uh, from the perspective of you know, how do you market a fundamental financial service that's it's not necessarily really sexy, 
um, um, but as you know, but as behind the household financial planning and, and you know, in, in just about every family in America. Yeah, I mean, you know, trends across the board for advertising, for marketing, for general public relations has certainly changed in recent years. Um, you know, with the change, changing the way that cable operates, people are, you know, no longer have cable and they're relying on Hulu and Amazon and Disney Prime. And I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, so that means no commercials. Uh, which used to be such a huge chunk of people's advertising dollars, whether it was local or national television. Um, as a result, we're seeing social media ads increase in cost. Um, you know, they're certainly still more cost-effective and efficient than a television ad, uh, but the cost is going up because more people are living online in different different ways and and whether for personal or business, and particularly since the last year plus when we've all been essentially stuck at home a lot more than uh, than before. So we're seeing a shift in how you how you reach people, but then also how you talk to people. Um, you know, to your point, promoting banking may not always be the sexiest thing in the entire world, but it is incredibly important. Uh, it is an essential part of every person's Households, uh, the economy, community. So, figuring out how you can be talking to your your customers, your clients, and perspective as well. Uh, using data, there's never been more data available than there is today. Uh, almost to the point that it is crazy, creepy, and a little scary. Uh, yeah. But how do you and, use that? I to know, your, right. I know, like in like in other industries and other areas of. Uh, the economy diversity and inclusion uh, is expected or will certainly be uh, an important component of how um, the banking industry does its marketing. It, 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 could, it could be as simple as uh, how you represent your customer base and marketing materials to, to the programming you may have at the community level. And, and, and banks uh, are, are traditionally one of those in uh, banking, one of the industries that, that has a pretty good record uh, of of making sure it's involved with the community, at least at least uh, banks of a certain uh, type and size. So I think diversity and inclusion uh, that's definitely on the list. Uh, and again, as uh, as you said, uh, using data, using big data to reach to to understand your customers more, um, and then using more social media marketing in a way that they haven't in the past because. Um, so-called neo banks or fintech organizations like Chime and Stash and Acorns are almost completely built on social and digital marketing. And we're seeing the traditional big banks like Wells Fargo and Bank of America um, taking a page out of that book and being more visible in that way. Yeah. And, you know, the great thing about social media advertising, too, is you track those clicks, you track what works, the data that you're collecting firsthand, not even from a third party, um, it, all, it all plays into it of, of figuring out what do people respond to, uh, which you will never get from a television advertisement in quite the same manner. So uh, I don't, th you know, nothing particularly surprising, but just these trends that can, we continue to see that are getting more and more formalized as the new way of doing business for marketing, advertising, and press. Excellent. All right, Kyan, fascinating stuff. 
Thanks so much. Good talk to you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of 321 Go. Our program is recorded remotely, still for the time being, but not forever, in different locations around the U.S. Our producer is Catherine O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Goodbye till next time. I'm Cosmo Macero. Hi, everyone. I'm joined today by Duana Beeman, Chief Diversity Officer at People's United Bank. Duana, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Diane. Um, so, Chief Diversity Officer, very interesting job. Um, I think at any time, I would imagine, particularly over the course of the last year, it's probably changed in, a, in recent years, but really in the last year, kind of taken a different turn. But in general, um, diversity, inclusion, and in business is becoming increasingly prevalent and recognized as an integral part of any organization, perhaps now more than ever. Uh, how are you seeing this play out in the banking industry and even within People's United Bank more specifically? Yeah, absolutely. You're correct. Um, I've been doing this work for a long time, but the, the past year has definitely been a year like no other. You know, I'll say that like many industries, the banking industry has had its share of challenges when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, and especially around gender and racial and ethnic diversity and leadership. However, I'm encouraged to see many companies are taking a proactive stance in recent years to level the playing field. Um, what we're seeing now is more financial institutions are creating opportunities and products to serve the unbanked and the underbanked. Um, a recent study by Citigroup researchers shows that the U.S. economy has lost $16 trillion as a result of discrimination against African Americans. That is and, a lot you know, of like, money. That is a lot of money, exactly. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm proud to say that People's United is one of those companies that's taken a proactive stance through our investments in affordable housing, through our grant making and charitable giving. Um, in 2020, you know, People's United invested almost $139 million in affordable housing, made grants of almost $4 million through our foundations and conducted over 350 financial education workshops promoting financial literacy, through community outreach, workplace banking, and first-time homebuyer classes, reaching over 5,000 people. That's incredible. Um, and it's, you know, you talk a lot about when we talk about enhancing diversity. Um, you know, we the first thought is sort of what's happening at the corporate level. I know that you're also doing a lot at the corporate level. We can talk about that in a moment. Um, but when you talk about how you, your approach, your first thought is really how we're working to address diversity and inclusion within customers, within communities. Uh, and I think that's, you know, it's pretty spectacular. Of course, having worked with People's United Bank, I do know a lot of the community foundation work that's done too, uh, focuses on, you know, communities where you have banks and giving back and making sure that you're helping to raise up a lot of those organizations in the communities that are also serving underserved populations. Absolutely. And um, so at the, I guess, at the corporate level within the company, what is People's United doing to enhance diversity and inclusion at the table, so to speak? Yeah. Well, uh, I'll share one of the most recent things that People's United has done to enhance diversity and inclusion is actually hiring me as their first chief diversity <laughs> officer. 
Um, I joined Peoples in November of 2020 um, in the midst of a pandemic. And, um, you know, Peoples has always done, Peoples United Bank has always done a great job of, um, you know, trying different things and, and ensuring that we have an inclusive environment. Um, but they were very transparent when I was going through the interview and hiring process that, you know, while they've tried things and they've done things over the years, um, they really wanted to have a, a more strategic focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so that's why they brought me on board to really take them on this journey of diversity and inclusion. So we're really in our infancy, if you think about a formal diversity and inclusion strategy compared to some other companies, but definitely the commitment has always been there. Yeah, and so we know from from history, from practice, from uh, from all of us just interacting on a daily basis that when people are represented at the table, more meaningful conversations take place that produce positive outcomes for everyone. Um, the organization as well as those served by them, which is a lot of what you're talking about. Uh, what changes have people put in place since you have come on board, since bringing these issues to the forefront of your organization? And what do you think the, sort of the next steps are as you look around, not just for People's United Bank, but for banking and business as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the great things is that I've got strong um, partnerships with our corporate communications team. And so they have really been instrumental in helping me to um, enhance our communication strategy to incorporate education and awareness of DNI topics, including topics around commitment to racial and social justice, cultural and religious observances and celebrations. Um, sharing employee stories. We, you know, one of the things that I did was um, early on uh, joining the organization was send out a calendar to all employees of cultural and religious holidays and observances. And it was something small that um, I did, but had such impact in that, you know, I had employees sending me emails, sending corporate communications emails, sending our CEO emails, saying that, you know, how proud they were to see their culture or their religion or their observances um, part of something that went out to all employees and that we were building that awareness. And that's just one small thing. Um, I think, you know, the future of, of DNI in banking in the financial services industry goes back to what I talked about a few minutes ago and really, you know, helping to build that awareness because as we build that awareness, that will then help to change the landscape help to shrink some of those wealth gaps that we see. We know that there's a lot of research out there showing that um, you know, women and people of color are um, less wealthy in retirement because they don't have the tools and resources that they need um, or the education around financial literacy growing up to build that wealth. So I think all of those things, no matter how big or small, are part of that strategy and really part of the impact that we're having. And Having been a diversity officer for um, for quite some time in, in your career and obviously now at Peoples, why is a focused DNI strategy critical in enhancing the culture of a business? And you know, maybe you can talk a little bit, not even just about Peoples, but other organizations you've worked with. What kind of changes have you seen come from when a when the organization puts that at the front? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, a focused DNI strategy is critical because it, it really creates a common purpose and accountability throughout the organization. Um, my title is Chief Diversity Officer, but the CDO in your organization and HR aren't the ones that are solely responsible for creating a diverse, equitable, and inclusive organization. It's really mm -hmm. everyone's job, from the CEO to the bank teller or everyone in between. And, you know, not just in banking, whatever organization or industry you're in, um, it's really everybody's job to create that. And so whether it's your sales team going out to sell to multicultural clients and customers, or whether it's your um, talent acquisition team building talent and trying to recruit talent and diverse talent, everybody has a, a, a role to play. And so having that strategy that people can really anchor into and say, these are the things that we're focused on, here's why, and okay, here's my piece of that and what I need to do to help to accomplish what we're saying we want to do is really what your strategy is all about. So having that strategy is critical. Um, you know, like I said, I've done this work for quite a while and you know, people always talk about the business case for diversity. Well, we're really beyond the business case. We know that there is absolutely a business case. It's not just a nice thing to do to have a diversity and inclusion strategy or office or initiative. Um, it really is critical to business. And so when we think about it as a business imperative, having that strategy, that's not just a diversity strategy, it has to be embedded in your overall business strategy. It can't be a standalone, something that people are doing off the side of their desk. It really has to be embedded in your business strategy. That's when you see the, the what the research bears out um, in revenue generation, in um, you know first in class, uh, products and services in being an employer of choice, all of those things that go along with having a robust DNI strategy. And, you know, I would be remiss, and you can, of course, elaborate on this because you know better than anyone. But when we talk about diversity and inclusion as purposeful business, as being a part of a strategy, all good and very important things, you know, I think what we haven't touched on too, and it's worth is it's also the right thing to do. Um, and as you're you know, at a bank and, and just within the business world, have you, are you seeing a shift that you think that that's really where we're starting to go? And what do you think the next steps are, not just for people's, but, but in general, when we're approaching diversity and inclusion um, in all businesses and organizations and, and just as a society? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if we think about the past year and all the things that we've seen um, that have happened in society in, in America, um, whether it was around racial and social justice or, um, you know, everything around COVID even and the impacts of COVID on different populations, diversity and inclusion is part of all of that. And so our shift really hasn't been away from diversity and inclusion. It's really been more embedded in diversity and inclusion because all of those things have DNI ties. And so if you're mm -hmm. thinking about COVID and the impact that it's had on you know, the African-American, Latinx, and Native American populations, 
or if you're thinking about COVID from the perspective of women leaving the workforce in droves because they've got childcare issues that they're trying to deal with while they're trying to work full time from home and be on a Zoom call. Um, all of those are diversity and inclusion issues and, and things that need to be addressed. And so I would say, you know, yes, it is definitely a nice thing to do, but again, you know, it really has business impacts to it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that you mentioned coming on board in the middle of a pandemic, certainly not easy, but the time was certainly right. And I think we're, we're seeing a lot of companies take a, a more focused approach, a uh, more deliberate strategic approach to diversity and inclusion, and that there will probably be ripple effects of that for years and decades to come that I think will ultimately benefit us all, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about is, you know, the, again, the business outcomes, the revenue generation, the results uh, that the business may experience. Um, McKenzie has done a great job uh, over the last few years of doing research in their 2020 diversity uh, wins report found that companies in the top quartile for gender diversity on their executive teams are 25% more likely to experience above average profitability than companies in the fourth quartile. And for ethnic and cultural diversity, the study found a 36% likelihood of outperformance on the company's EBIT margin compared to companies that don't have ethnic and racial diversity at the top of the house. So if any organization or company wants to continue to be competitive, they are definitely going to have to have a continued focus and not just a focus, but a laser focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. Well, the numbers speak for themselves, clearly. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think, you know, this is obviously such an interesting time to be talking about these things, and we'd love to have you back and uh, just, you know, kind of keep this conversation going. But thanks, thanks again. Thank you, Cayenne. I'd love to come back anytime, and thanks again for having me. Hey, Cayenne, two minutes Hi, with Cayenne and, and what's his name? That guy. Yep, that guy. How are and you? Tom? Yep, Fred. <laughs> Welcome to Two Minutes with Tom. How are you, sir? I'm fine. It's good to be with you. Great to be with you. Um, I thought we'd talk today about Liz Cheney. What, what do you think? And what she carries in the way of symbolism and, I guess, in some quarters, hope for the Republican Party. One would think, but apparently they want to go in a different direction, at least within the legislature. So I don't know. I mean, the the, I, the divisiveness of the direction of the Republican Party seems to be really playing out this week in a very real way of, you know, the yeah. party, what the party in theory in the office thinks versus those on the ground acting as members. Well, I think I think we have to look at it a little bit differently and think that, you know, what here is going on is that um, is that we have congressional elections coming up in 2022, and I do think that the changeover in leadership within the House hierarchy is really tied to 2022 and not the Republican Party long term. Um, I think they're looking at congressional seats which are coming up in those purple states. Um, and, and some of those seats that turned over from Republican to Democrat in 2018 and 2020 and seeing if they can't win them back. 
and I think this is part of an elaborate strategy, getting rid of Liz Cheney to make that happen so that they can keep the Trump or of the Republican Party in the water and keep it activated for a little bit longer. He being, you know, the esprit de corps within the Republican Party in, on, a, on, a, on a still basis. Um, so we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll see what happens. I guess my assumption, and apparently I was wrong, was that once Trump left office, I mean, he's now essentially silenced on all social media. He doesn't have much of a platform um, to speak from anymore that they would start to walk away from him. And that doesn't seem to be the case. And I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely shocked by that, uh, that more of the party is still deciding that they want to stand by him. You would think that that would be the case. Um, And I think there are a lot of people that wishing and thinking that the same thing that, that you thought was going to happen. Once out, he was out. The fact of the matter is, um, there's still a very divisive nature in the American electorate. And I, I think the Republicans know that they're trying to stoke the fires and keep that, that burning alive. Um, and I, again, I think they're focused on 2022. I don't know how long his star stays bright. I'm talking about Trump's. I, I don't think forever. And it's not, it's not, it cannot be the future of the, Rep, of the Republican Party because it brings them nowhere ultimately. But I think in the short term, and it is short term viewing, they're trying to restore the majority in the, in the U.S. House, if not the U.S. Senate. And so we'll see what happens. On the other hand, Liz Cheney uh, has done the right thing by, by the Republican Party long term. And it's been, I think, truly helpful for the Republican Party. Maybe she can galvanize or get galvanized around that issue. Who knows? Maybe she's a candidate for the presidency in 2024. I don't know that. I do know that she's got trouble in her home base. And um, were she up for election, she'd have some problems. But the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, that that I, I, I think that she will still be around and I think she'll have a political voice. And hopefully it's, you know, a more sane, more sober voice for the Republican Party going going forward. Um, Liz Cheney is is somebody who is the daughter of, you know, the, the former vice president of the United States under under George W. Bush. Um, he was, I think, almost totally responsible for getting us into Afghanistan in that war 20 years ago, uh, based on a lie. And it should not be forgotten that Liz Cheney, you know, s- supported that lie um, for the invasion. So I, I know what she's doing. Uh, I think it's great for the Republican Party long term, but I'm, I'm not going to dismiss, you know, her earlier historic activities either. It's just, uh, it's kind of fascinating to me. Hey, but Godspeed to what she's trying to do with the party. I think it's all Someone good. Got to, right? Yep. I think that's <laughs> right. I think that's right. Anyway, anyway, it's good to see you. It's good to talk to you on this first day of masks off and almost back to normalcy. Yeah, so yeah. Um, it's a little it's a little uneven as we go across the country as to who has and who has not a mask on or off. But here it's it's getting as if um, people are feeling good about themselves. They want to get out. They want to kind of celebrate life and, and socialize more than they have. So there we have it. It's always yeah. good to see you. It's always good to see you. I love you without a mask and uh, <laughs> and look forward to talking to you very shortly. You too, Tom. Thank you. Thanks, Kayette. That's it for this week's episode of OA On Air via social distancing. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next week.